Europe, you're on the panel, RNZ National, Wallace Chapman here. Now, by the way, the panel is available on iHeart, Apple, Spotify. If you can't catch the show live, make sure you don't miss it. And I tell you what, you will not want to miss some of the most extraordinary bits of feedback I've had about caning and strapping. I can't believe it. I'm speechless, actually, with some of them. So that's at 25 past four today. Um, now, uh, a crash has closed a section of State Highway 1 near Puhi Puhi Road in Whakapara. Followed directions of emergency services and delay your journey. And State Highway 25 remains closed between Waiomu and Rua Mahunga while work continues to clear material, stabilise the rock face and ensure it's safe to reopen. This first, the government has this afternoon announced funds for cash-strapped universities, tertiary institutions. An additional $128 million will be invested into the tertiary sector to increase tuition subsidies at degree level and above by a further 4% in 2024 and 2025. This in addition to the 5% increase uh, from the budget. The government has said it was the most significant funding increase in 20 years and they will commission a review into the way the tertiary sector is funded. Now, potential cuts could have meant 229 full-time roles at Vic Gone and 700 at Otago, although they're not the only institutions affected. With us is Dr Karen Palmer, Theatre Coordinator at Te Heranga Waka Victoria University, Wellington. Dr Palmer, Welcome. Kia ora. Thank you, Wallace. It's Lovely a pl- to be here. Pleasure to have you on. Now, Vice-Chancellor Nick Smith briefed staff on the uni's latest proposals on cost saving to address this forecast $33 million deficit at your university. How has morale been amongst the staff? Uh, it's been absolutely devastating. Uh, I cannot stress how upsetting this has been for people. I sat in a council meeting yesterday. Um, people were actively sobbing behind me. I've had my colleagues who are distraught. We have been particularly badly hit in theatre. I'm also working in uh, secondary teacher education. So I work in all the programs <laughs> that are being affected and music as well. And uh, I have devastated colleagues who are in tears, who feel let down, who feel uh, misunderstood, who feel misinformed. And, yeah, frankly, it's it's um, it's really terrifying. And I think the other thing that I've been experiencing is the amount of parents and grandparents. Um, I'm a parent of teenagers myself who are looking at tertiary education who have been contacting me and reaching out and saying, my kids have had a terrible four years at secondary school. We've gone through COVID. They had one guiding light and that was what they were going to study at tertiary education, and that is being taken away from them. So I think morale is, um, we are devastated, but we are also fighting. We are fighting really, really hard. Um, We are led by a fantastic union, and um, this recent uh, announcement from the government today is is round one, I keep saying. This feels like we have a, a bit of a win here. The government has started a a process and we welcome and we thank them for this leadership and the intervention. All right, a panel uh, very, very soon. But I've got to ask you, Karen, uh, is this enough to allay uh, the positions affected in your department? 
Uh, at the moment, no. Um, that we're looking at in our theatre program, we're looking at a complete uh, 50% annihilation and a merger with the English program. Um, the music program that I also work into is looking at, uh, you know, a third and secondary education. It's been cut in a teaching crisis. Um, so, yeah, no, it's not. But what needs to happen now is it's really, really imperative that the VC in Victoria puts a moratorium on these redundancies. What really needs to happen is we have to have a proper conversation and we need to be able to do that without the sort of Damocles ho- okay. hovering over us. All right, the cut's looking to go ahead in your department there, Victoria. Um, they are Victorian, yes. <laughs> yeah, Victoria McLennan. Um, kia ora. Um, Dr Palmer, thanks for joining us and your insight. I'm I'm really interested in the cuts to secondary education and you assume that the university has made these decisions based on enrolment numbers, cost effectiveness and demand and yet as you say we're in a teaching crisis so has there been any justification given for why that that particular really important secondary education teachers would be cut? So part of the problem with secondary education is that it's an expensive program to run and that is because you have to have specialist teachers. So, for example, I'm a specialist drama teacher, so I come in and teach that specialist subject. So it's an expensive program to run. We have to send out teachers, um, trainee teachers into schools. I, I think we have to actually fund some of that. It's very expensive. Um, secondary the teacher numbers are down, but not greatly. I mean, we're taking, there's still 30 students here. That's 30 jobs in Wellington next year that will be filled and you take that away. Um, so, and just on the on looking at theatre, the data that they have given to us is actually incorrect. So they have actually, they've done this very quickly. They've given us some data that is research that has not been done properly. The data is incorrect. They say that our numbers have been declining. We've had a 1% decline in theatre over the COVID years, which if you think about how we deliver theatre and music, generally in person, that we we pivoted overnight to teach those programs wow. online. Okay. And yeah. Yes, Alan. Yeah, um, Dr Palmer, thanks for this. Um, if we look at Vic um, and the issues around that, is that okay? And um, yeah, in sure. particular, you know, what's coming out of the government is that overall student numbers are down. We understand that. International student numbers are down. One of the things that came from the Minister of Finance today, I think, was more positions at Vic exist now than prior to COVID rolling out. Can you speak to that point? Um I could if I if I if I knew the data. I don't know if there's more positions. I suspect that there may be more positions in higher higher up. For example, uh, we are certainly uh, completely overworked. Um, we literally, I haven't had a holiday in two years. Um, yeah. I, you know, like I, I, I don't. Not, I'm not sure where that data's come from. I can't speak yeah. to it, but I do definitely think the administration staff, the technical staff. The, the academic staff are really, really working so hard. Um, is, it, is it a fact, Karen, that we do have to review the funding system? Look, there are shifts in demographics. There are yes. societal shifts, meaning that look, not many, not as many people might choose university in the future as a career option. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And I think you look at just the population of New Zealand. We're literally the you know the size of a 
a, a city overseas. So we need to work together as a sector. We need to work. To, we need to have conversations together to say what is our point of difference. We shouldn't be working in competition yeah. with each other. I, I, you know, I, think, yeah. I agree. That, that competition aspect has been a really fraught issue in the system for a long time. And then the other yeah. thing is the government's put so much money into attracting people into trades, but not yeah. money into attracting people into other yeah. forms of higher education. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah may, absolutely. Maybe a poli- policy thing that we're seeing in evidence here. One, one of the other things, sorry to jump in, Dr Palmer, um, just one of the other things um, was the PBRF, the Performance Based Research mm-hmm. Fund, as we call it. Now, a lot of academics in the past have said to me, and it's anecdotal in this area, I suppose, but they criticise the PBRF, for example, and having, have some have said that senior academics are encouraged to advance outreach to general media, general public, etc. And such efforts easily meet the PBRF, but they stop the intellectualism, if you like, you know, the, 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 the very expensive academics sitting there in the universities mm. that um, would normally apply their intellectual skills into writing deep research or books. Um, now, once again, this is anecdotal, but it seems to be rising up as one of the areas that is going to be looked at and see whether or not this is fit for purpose as well. Can you speak to that point there? Yeah, look, I agree. I'm actually, the, the university has brought in a thing called the Teaching Intensive Pathway, which I'm one of the first uh, people on, which is actually, so um, research is not part of my role currently. And I think the university needs to focus on their core business is teaching, <laughs> personally. That's a personal response. Um, and in that we have lost that somewhere along the way is because PBRF attracts money, it attracts funds. And so that's why that focus has been on that. And we can't run this as a business. This is an ed- These are educational institutions. We need to be focused on education. We need to be focused on young people. We need to be focused on... Obviously, we need to be focused on research, but not at the expense of teaching and education. Mm. And the fact that there's so much pressure on on academics to be chasing this dollar and to be, you know, how can you get more money and how can we get more funds and is, is, is counterintuitive to what the core purpose of tertiary education Good is. to have you on the programme, Karen Kiara. Thank you for your time there. That's uh, Karen Palmer, the Theatre Coordinator at uh, Victoria University, a senior lecturer there, responding to the news out this afternoon that $128 million additional will be invested into the tertiary sector. 17 past four, the panel, we have Victoria McLennan and Sour Manning this afternoon. Good to have you with us today. Very interesting article on the Democracy Project site reflecting on the five changes that Prime Minister Chris Hipkins announced at the same time as Michael Wood resigned as a minister. New rules including annual in-person reviews with ministers and quarterly reporting about conflicts of interest to the Prime Minister. Now we had Stephen Franks on the panel the other day when it was announced. He said the rules wouldn't work. It's the personal character you've got to look at. This article here is titled Rules Can't Restore Personal Integrity. So is it time to have a wider independent agency oversight uh, regarding integrity and ethical issues in Parliament? The author is Jackie Vanderkay, PhD student at Victoria University, former journalist. Jackie, welcome. Thank you, Wallace. Nice to be here. Yeah, you say the rules around conflict of interest already outlined in the Cabinet Manual, very clear. So then, what do these new rules offer? So I think they are another layer, but the point I was making is that there's already very clear rules, and for some reason, and um, the politicians don't seem to be able to follow them, um, Michael Wood 
resignation followed. He was asked 16 times about his shares in Auckland Airport and still he didn't sell them. So it just um, strikes me that there's deep issues going on here. So the question you ask is why elected representatives and in particular ministers cannot take personal accountability for their integrity? Yes, that's right. So what then about, you keep going. Sorry, yeah, I I think that the trouble with these integrity issues is that they reflect badly on all politicians, not just the ones who who have these issues, but they impact on the public's trust on politicians and in in Parliament itself as well. Yeah, and you saw, I'll get the panel to jump in uh, very soon, but you Reading the article, you cite some research saying that, and this is interesting, isn't it? One of the starkest findings uh, of research you looked at is that when citizens were forced to choose, most would rather have politicians who were honest, even though they were less successful or hardworking. Yeah, that's right. So citizens really value honesty. And um, it just does seem to be a bit of an issue at the moment for um, our politicians. Yeah, does it not, Victoria McLennan? Um, well, my immediate thought, Jackie, and I loved your approach in your article and the point about personal integrity was, you know, my mind jumps to the UK and think about the last year, 10 years the Tories have been caught building moats around their homes and awarding contracts to the companies that they own. And it seems to have become normal practice over there and yet I don't remember a time when these kind of integrity issues have been surfaced here before. And I wonder whether that kind of acceptable lower of standard has come into our politicians or whether it's just that the media haven't found all of their dirty laundry in the past. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question and, and one that I've been grappling with a little bit myself because there has definitely been an increase over recent years of these issues and it is a hard question to answer about exactly why that is happening um, and I think one of the things that is important in our democracy is, is the media and a lot of these issues including um, Michael Wood's shoes that was actually uncovered by the media um, so that you know they're definitely um, filling their role in that respect but it is, it is an interesting question about why we're having more of these issues come up. Yeah, Salwan? Yeah, it's a bit of an observation here. Um, what, what I particularly like the the approach of the new rules that have come through this, and I'll explain why. Beyond exactly on this issue too, it tightens up the focus, in my view, on the on on the ministers themselves. That there is a sense of, you know, the ninth floor is watching very carefully. There are frameworks that are going to be in place that will make sure that it is able to look in on those ministerial offices. And what what I'm getting at here is if we look back to previous um, governments that have been around a while, Helen Clark's one in the 2000s, the fear that would be on the faces of those ministers in that particular government if the thought of Heather Simpson and her team coming down into the offices to check them out. Likewise with John Key's one, when Eagleson was chief no. of staff, you know there, there was strong um, internal requirements and leadership that was in there. I think these laws actually create a sorry laws. These new this new approach to it, it tightens it up so that it it, it sends a very clear signal to the ministers. But beyond that. If they are starting to slip, it picks it up really early, not just to correct the uh, 
you know, apparent or the real conflicts of interest, but non-performance. And that would send red, red signals to the, the ninth floor, to the prime minister, his people or her people, to this minister is slipping up in this area. We've got to look a bit more under the hood here. And that's what I like about the tightening up of the rules. I, I get that the other arguments, um, and Stephen Frank's argument is a very valid one. I don't think the two arguments exclude one or the other. Mm-hmm. It's not an either or yeah. either issue. Nice one. All right, just finally, Jackie, uh, you mentioned uh, people are asking, hey, what about a wider independent agency to oversee integrity and ethical issues? But what you say, hey... Um, that's happened in the UK, and as Victoria suggests, it hasn't worked. Yeah, and and that's an, and, I mean the UK is a really good example of that, and Victoria's absolutely right, and that there's been a, a real raft of scandals there over the past, and really big ones over the past decade or so. And as a result of those um, multiple scandals, they they have instituted some more institutional oversight, if you like, of Parliament and ministerial practices, but it actually hasn't really altered the outcome, which is why I come back to this personal integrity issue, which is actually, yeah, these these are our elected representatives, they're there to represent the public, and it is on them to take their responsibility seriously, particularly when they are ministers in the government. Yeah, it's a very good article, uh, Jackie. I'm glad that uh, we could discuss it on uh, the panel. Kia ora. Thanks for your time. That's uh, Jackie Bandeke, uh, who's at Vic. Uh, You can check that article actually on the Democracy Project uh, site. 24 past for the panel. We have Salwyn Manning and Victoria McLennan, and I just can't believe the response we've had uh, to this next story. In fact, so much that I wanted to say right now, close it off. Don't text me any more about the uh, caning, but you can email me, and I'll pick it up tomorrow. We might actually keep on going with us on Friday. The panel at rnz.co.nz. When we caned children, former high school teacher David Hill being ordered to witness a caning when he was in training at a boys' high school. The teacher hit him across the backside three or four times with some basket-making cane. He observed this. He always recalls it. And I put out the call, did he ever get caned? The strap, what for? So jolly weird to think about it now. So that article was in the spin-off. With us is in, with us now is in, sorry, is Alan in Ototahi Christchurch. Kia ora, Alan. Yeah, hello. Wallace. Hello, what was, what's your story? Oh, how long you got? <laughs> so I, some sort of strange dichotomy of events here where I was punished so much at school uh, as an underachiever and a really naughty little person with everything against the establishment of school and everything you should do, that I think it made me the success I am today, not because I was punished, but because I was determined not to be what they thought I should be, a complete underachiever. So I literally remember being caned. The the headmaster couldn't inflict enough pain, so they got the woodwork teacher to cane me because he was a great big tough guy. And this is a, you know, this is... Not made up stuff. It's, that's how it was back then. I'm, I'm 67 years old, so I would have been 14, 15, 13, 14, 15 at a at an intermediate school. And so the, there was the cane around your backside. There was the strap around your backside, and any other form of punishment. I'm just shocked hearing this. Mm. This is actually, I mean, Victoria. Yeah, it's. Alan, your story just sounds horrendous, and I'm really sorry to hear that happened to you, but really pleased that you could channel that into a positive outcome. Um, I, my parents didn't 
strap us or smack us or anything. I was a child of the seventies, and they were teenagers when we were born, and they, when I was born, and they probably didn't want to repeat those mistakes of their parents. But I remember Nelson College for Girls very, very clearly. This is one of my strongest school memories. Kneeling on the concrete every morning to check that your skirt touched the ground. And if your skirt didn't touch the ground, you got a short, sharp strap on your hand. And it was as much about the humiliation of that happening in front of all the other girls in your wow. your year as it was about the strap. Gosh. And yep. yet, wow. And yet, Alan, here you are. You've become the CEO of many large New Zealand and foreign com- companies, being very successful in life. Oh, yes. And, not, and that's not out of pure talent. I think it's because I was just very interested in proving the same point I had at school. Your strapping and beating won't, it's not going to beat me. So like, go mad. And I think it tempted me to be a bit more naughty and to challenge them. You know, you're not going to beat me with a stick and beat me down. And unfortunately, um, the, the environment I was raised in was that there were other things going on that predicated me being a bit naughty. And and so they, um, I wouldn't say they took pleasure in it, but it was the only thing they could do. Um, I unfortunately, and I've had my own children, um, when my young son was naughty, I would strap him. And I, and I didn't know why. I mean, I re- regret it dreadfully now. I've discussed it with him, and he said, well, you know, it's, it's what we thought we should do. I mean, of course, now it's, we have a different view. But um, they were, I don't know why, this, why was the school hitting me. Was it to make me behave, or was it to shock me, my behaviour? I can't work it out. But what it did do was make me believe that I'm the boss of my own destiny. You're not going to change me by hitting me. And so as I went, and I and I left school pretty uneducated. I mean, I was very poorly educated. I left school, but that whole process of making me angry just kept me not angry, but determined. Alan, you know, If I wanted oh a gosh. job, I'd go, I want that job. You're not going to stop me. You Good on you, Alan. Thanks for being with us this afternoon on the panel. Kia ora. Thanks, bye. Yep. Uh, Salwin, uh, we've had so much response. Here's, here's another one. 87, I still recall being strapped three times at primary school. The most memorable was for four spelling mistakes. It felt so unjust. The teacher had to force my hand open. Another one, we had a sadistic teacher when I was 9 or 10 who used to wander the classroom strapping kids left and right. My friend Susan got strapped for rolling a crooked line in an exercise book. He also used the strap as a teaching aid. One poor boy from a home got strapped every morning when he got his times tables wrong, which was always Salwin. I'll be, I'll be quick, Wallace, because I know the news is coming up, isn't it? So... Um, you know, th- thinking back, Alan's experience that he was relaying there, it is so common. I think there's just thousands of people like this. I witnessed it. I experienced it myself in the same Did way. You? I'd never been strapped as a primary school kid, never been strapped as a intermediate. We got to high school. The cane was used all the time. I remember with one particular teacher, he wasn't allowed to cane unless he had another teacher witnessing because he'd get out of, out of control and keep thrashing people. We were caned every week that whole year of the fourth form by this guy to the point where it ended up that what it led to really was a group of us that built up the frustration of getting him back. We blew up his bag with fireworks at the end of the you know <laughs> November then. You know, it was that kind of thing of rebellion. It did nothing except for an us and them fight. Right. Really. And, you know, it was 
disastrous to the point where you'd look at the stripes on your backside when you got home at night. You wouldn't tell anybody of your own family through the embarrassment of it. They would not just be red. They would be blue on the outside, swelling up to the point of breaking blood. <laughs> it, and it, and that's, it, that's the reality it, of what it was like. It feels like another time, doesn't it, Victoria? It yeah. feels I like can another remember time. Gra- yeah. grabbing it off him, this guy, once, Wallace. Really? I grabbed the cane off him and threatened him back with it. That's what it created. It's it's inconceivable now to think that teachers or schools thought that there was a way of motivating. I think embarrassment is a very strong word in here. Um, You know, Alan said he doesn't know why they did it. Well, maybe it was to try and embarrass him into changing his behaviour. Um, or maybe it was just vindictive on the heart of the teachers who were just so frustrated. Yeah. Uh, here's one. Uh, one more here. At Wellington College in the 80s, a legendary third former, when asked after some offence by the principal, do you want the strap or six of the, or, or the cane, six of the best of either, strap or cane, he replied, whatever turns you on. And he got mm. both. Oh. You're on the panel, uh, NZ National. 